Welcome back to the sourdough mother of all podcasts. Beethoven walks into a bar. I'm Mike Gordon, principal flute of the Kansas City Symphony. I'm Jason Sieber, the associate conductor. And I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the director of education and community engagement. So today we are welcoming back our first ever repeat guest. And there's a lot to look forward to in the upcoming season. A lot to reflect upon as we chart a path forward over a year without live full orchestra concerts, too. That's right, Stephanie. You know, the last time today's special guest was with us, we spent a good portion of our time together talking about a few celebrations that got interrupted. A Beethoven celebration, an Isaac Stern celebration. Uh, so today it's my pleasure to welcome back our maestro to talk about all of the celebrations to come this season. Without further ado, let's welcome back our fantastic music director, Mr. Michael Stern. Welcome back to the program, Michael. I am delighted to be with all of you. I'm I'm honored to be the first repeat guest. Yes. That's, that's we, uh, we couldn't bestow that honor rightfully upon anyone else. So uh, we, we're glad to have you back. But uh, before we get into uh, this upcoming season, how how was your summer? Did you uh, were you able to get back to doing some conducting, some planning to conduct, some enjoying yourself away from music? I actually had um, a little bit of whiplash because, like with all of us. There wasn't a lot going on for a lot of months. And then all of a sudden it got crazy busy and um, for different reasons. But part of it was the actual work and part of it was not being used to the grind, not mm -hmm. being used to the routine. And so what seemed to have you know, happened almost automatically beforehand now needed conscious effort things like you know getting dressed in the morning and uh, <laughs> putting like, on pants that button that, right stuff <laughs> like that but also you know getting on a plane and uh opening a score it was interesting because i had a lot of occasion to think about music and consider music and even study music without any pressure of performance um and your relationship to the printed pages then different and then you don't really want to worry about the hassle about getting to a place and figuring out a schedule and and you know it's and for me it was also very personal because for a very long time my schedule did not allow me any kind of regularity in terms of the schedule i had with my children and then all of a sudden i was with them very regularly for many months at a time. And I got very, very used to that. And, and having any kind of adjustment to that is, is hard. And I keep thinking, I'm not sure that I want to lose that mm -hmm. actually. So it's, it's complicated, but when all is said and done, the idea of being back with friends and colleagues and making good music and, and being back out in the world, that, that is a tonic. That feels good. Can I ask a question, too? I was thinking this because we just did our first classical uh, series in Hellsberg Hall not too long ago. And so much of what we do is is very physical. I mean, you and Jason as conductors, it's very physical. Um, there's a lot of endurance involved and a lot of, you know, big motions and muscles that are used <laughs> all the time when you're conducting, but you know, when you go long periods of time without doing that, and certainly in our musicians, you know, if you go long periods of time without sitting and playing a full work like Mahler one, 
how do you prepare your endurance to come back? I guess this is a, a question for all three of you. I mean, you know, from the the actual like endurance and cardiovascular, you know, strength that it takes to conduct a full program like that. But also, you know, I mean, you know, our violinists who are are sitting and, you know, muscling through for an hour and a half of music making, how, how do you come back and do that? I'd be very interested to hear Jason's perspective on this, but I'm just going to jump in and say this. I don't discount the importance of really great conducting and helping an orchestral performance get off the ground. And obviously it can't be that easy to do because if it were that easy to do, there'd be a lot more conductors that musicians actually like, but <laughs> um, it is a very, very, very different thing to get on stage and play. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I was a player, I still play, but not on stage. And I will never, ever say, it's not a question of easier or harder, but if I had to choose, playing is harder because you actually have to make the sound controlling either your vocal cords or your, your physical capacities. And I don't know any flute player, violinist, pianist who's playing you know, at a really high level when they're 92. But sometimes you see these conductors who get up on the podium <laughs> and they can still do what they need to do because conducting is not really at its core a physical act. And anybody who thinks that conducting is about gestures has got it completely wrong. Conducting is about both overt but also subliminal communication. It's about breathing. It's about contact, usually with the eyes and on the breath. And yeah, it helps if you're in shape. Um, and I think an elegant technique and a clear technique are indispensable to efficient performances. But as Jason well knows, as Mike certainly knows from his perspective in the orchestra, there are conductors who are abundantly clear where nothing happens. And there are people who are truly mystifyingly um, impenetrable who deliver extraordinary musical performances. You know, the famous example is Furtwängler, the great conductor, Willem Furtwängler. When you look at videos of how he, I mean, it's like a marionette got tied up in a phone booth <laughs> and yet he could make an orchestra sound divine. And there was something supremely magical about that. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know, you know, in terms of the muscular training and all that, I'm not sure that that had a lot to do with it. I will say that because of our caution with the current situation, we were all masked for this last series. Mm -hmm. That was hard because when you have a, a symphony by Mahler, which is just shy of an hour long, and there is a certain amount of physicality to it, just getting enough oxygen mm -hmm. was a little bit of a challenge. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and um, I mean, Michael, you were conducting in the mountains this summer with the National Repertory Orchestra. Well, so were you, actually. <laughs> a little bit, yeah, but not as much as you. And you want to talk about hard to get oxygen. Of course, there we weren't wearing masks, but I, I agree the mask is definitely makes things a little trickier. Uh, I would say I would totally agree, and I would, I'd be interested to hear what Mike thinks about this because... You're right. Conducting, we don't have that much muscular stuff we have to think about. I did notice a little bit of soreness when I first started conducting back in the spring again, when we were doing the mysymphonyseat.org. 
concerts, but just a little bit. Um, but I think especially for our string players, I noticed many of them shaking their arms out backstage after each performance uh, for CS1 and brass players, you know, just getting their lips back in shape, all the muscles of their embouchure. Mike, what do you think? Was it tough to come back? Well, um, well, first of all, I, I will admit something that I don't typically admit in a public forum, which is that there was a there was a moment in one of the concerts this weekend. I, I actually felt a fair quantity of uh, sympathy for you. I, th- I think we were in the fourth <laughs> movement at some point, and your mask slid, you know, over your chin and started riding up underneath your glasses, and you know, you're still fully musically committed, but this mask, you know, just kept kept coming up and I thought, oh, that's, that's just, that's got to be horrible. Uh, Wait, hold on. I just, I'm, I'm writing this down because I just need to record. Yeah. He's making a note for the official record. (laughs) Um, I I will say, of course, as a flute player, you know, I don't, I don't have to deal with the mask as I'm performing because I just, I can't. So I don't have that aspect to deal with. I will say, um, you know, I've been playing a lot, but sitting in the orchestra, you know, through the week and through a long concert, it's kind of like taking a long drive when you haven't driven your car a long way for a while, just sitting in that chair for, you know, four or five hours a day during the rehearsal days or, you know, a few hours uh, or a couple hours during the concert, you feel this little twinge, you know, between your shoulder blades that you haven't felt in a while. Uh, (laughs) So that, that was definitely true for me, but, but honestly, I will say, you know, sitting down and playing uh, with the full orchestra, we played small orchestra in the spring. It, there was a certain, you know, comfort and familiarity to it, which instantly felt like, oh, right. Yeah. I'm doing finally the thing that I do. And it was not hard for me actually to feel immediately normal again. So that was, that was enjoyable, but. Um, well, I, I have to admit this as well, and maybe it's not completely I don't know, politically correct or there's a lot of talk or there has been a lot of talk in the last little while, maybe a couple of decades about what the institution of an orchestra could be in the 21st century. You know, it is an old fashioned idea. Sometimes it can be seen as an autocratic setup, although I don't think that's the way we operate in Kansas city and in a lot of other modern orchestras, but you know, Music is taking on different forms, smaller groups, multimedia, um, uh, mixed format installations. There's all this um, experimentation, which is all healthy and all great, and it reflects the diversity of our modern world. And the idea that you should mass together 80, 90, 100 people to do this one thing um, seems like a little bit of a relic from the past to some Mm -hmm. people. And I would argue that it's exactly the opposite because there was, I mean, Mike, I, I understand exactly what you, what you meant when you said there was something familiar about the idea of coming back together in, in our proper numbers and doing what it is that we do, but it felt different. It felt more special. It felt, um, and it's not just because we had missed it. It's because it seems in, in a funny way, this, old-fashioned idea seems more urgent now than it did before, especially when you consider what the world is like. The idea that all these people can come in one place and do this one thing, which is kind of an extraordinary act of artistic faith, and have it completely in sync just is astounding to me. And 
I lost myself in that a little bit. I was very conscious of being moved by that and realizing this is essential, certainly for me, and it seemed like for a lot of people who were listening in the hall. Michael, let's talk about this season. Um, we are trying to return to somewhat of a normalcy, quote unquote, and we have big pieces again, big programs. But just talk a little bit about uh, how putting this season together coming out of a year of not being able to perform for live audiences was different than the previous many seasons you've put together for the Kansas City Symphony and some things that you thought about uh, as you were picking programs and repertoire and artists to work with. Well, I don't even know where to start because there's almost nothing normal about this season. Not in necessarily a bad way. It's just there are so many moving parts to this season, all of which seem important. Um, Obviously, the first one was coming back and making the case for music and for community and for service after having been away for so long. Mike mentioned that we did have some smaller orchestra of socially distanced masked concerts in the spring. A lot of that originally had been done for video, and then we had some audience come in, but it was not nearly what our normal operation was. And so... We had intended to come back right out of the gate with no masks, no distancing, no worry, of course, because of the events of the summer and the way the pandemic is being handled, we are still challenged and somewhat constrained and we weren't going to let that stop us. But I wanted to make a pretty bold statement um, about what the Kansas City Symphony has meant over the course of my tenure and what it's going to mean for the remaining um, three years of my tenure. And um, I think the audience was incredibly hungry for that. So Mahler won on, first, on the first program that we played and Brahms won on the second program that we made, a world premiere in the first concert with that wonderful piano concerto that we played by Gabriel Kahane that his father, Jeffrey Kahane played. And a world premiere, or at least a first world performance of a new piece by the English composer Stuart Turnbull called Odyssey. That's coming up in the second program. Um, and a great soloist, the aforementioned Jeffrey Kahane on Concert One and uh, Randall Gooseby on Concert Two. So I was really consciously trying to make a pair of concerts that reflected some of the things that we've always held dear and and wanted to have represented in the way that we put our best foot forward but then of course it's it's going to be a very different year i'm going to be around less because we're going to have a lot more guests because after this extended contract or rather i should say after the last of my contracted years which got extended by one year uh to 2024 we're going to have a new music director and i am really excited by the quality and the breadth of the pool of candidates that are already coming uh, in this season and will continue to come into the next season and i know that there's going to be an exciting and and successful and and brilliant new chapter and it's my it's not only my uh, allegiance, but it's my affection and my everything in my being that wants to make that as as 
great a process as possible. And so when we were planning the season, you know, I, I'm, I don't think it's ever appropriate and not even discussable for anybody in any field to be responsible for choosing his or her successor. But I did want to set the symphony uh, up for success with the audience and also getting our two feet back on the ground. I mean, you know, when you think about the interruption of the pandemic, it wasn't just that concerts stopped. There's a whole bevy of activities that goes around that contact with um, our supporters and the way we interact in the community and what we bring to the fore. And that's why, I mean, I admire the three of you for having done an extraordinary job with this podcast, keeping music in the Kansas City out there in the consciousness of everybody uh, in the community in such a fantastically interesting way. We were all trying to do the same thing with, you know, um, our collaboration with the new 24-7 classical music station in town, Classical KC, which is a great venture. Um, Mobile Music Box was going around everywhere, bringing music, live music from our musicians throughout the, the city. And then, you know, behind the scenes, just trying to invent more and more connection and keep, you know, contact and make the case, not only for the organization, but for music itself, because coming back is restarting on every level for everybody. And that's something that I can do and make sure that that's humming along as best it can be while all these other processes are in place. Music director search is only one of them. There's also the concert master search. We have auditions which need to be attended to because none of that could happen during the pandemic year. So there was a lot of work to be done and a lot more work ahead of us. And I just, you know, feel when planning the season, we were rolling up our sleeves and, and just getting it done. I think the program this season is incredibly varied and exciting. We have a lot of music from absolutely across the board. Um, and it was interesting uh, how, how to manage the composition of programs in terms of how to make everybody fit well into the larger context in terms of the, the invited guests. Because I wanted to try to help, and I did this primarily with Nancy Shalifor, our artistic administrator, I wanted to try to set every single guest conductor up for success. And he or she had certain programs that they wanted to propose. And then it becomes a really complicated jigsaw puzzle. How to get the soloist, the repertoire, and each conductor's preferences organized so that for any of our audience, our subscribers, our, our you know loyal fans, when they see the the season in its totality, they can say, like, I hope they've been able to say every season, wow, this really is a great Kansas City Symphony season. And I think we did that. So I, I want to talk about repertoire for a second, actually, because you, you know, you said something a few minutes ago that, that there was something, um, you know, newly uh, relevant about what we're doing. And, and I think that's true. And, you know, we always try to shine a light, I think, on new music and, um, and interesting composers. I think this year in particular, 
Um, there's a real emphasis on new music. We have a lineup of some really interesting young and diverse composers. How do you, how do you go about, um, linking that, you know, with, with the core repertoire, which we're also playing and how do you go about discovering, you know, some of these, uh, some of these new composers and new pieces, because actually I, I think people might not realize just how much is out there. And one of the things I personally find challenging is just is just making sense of all of it, sifting through it, you know, figuring out what what might go with what and what has a connection to, you know, whatever the the given thread is in a particular program. Well, this is something that Jason and I get tasked with all the time, right? And especially now, the need to include a wide array of diverse voices is an imperative and you know, the first, the first step is acknowledging that we all fell down on the job for decades. Classical music was behind the curve in the worst possible way. Now, does that mean that we should just pay lip service to the idea of making change happen? No. Does that also mean that in the service of that diversity, we should play music that we don't care about? Absolutely not. But what you just said was really true. There's a lot of really great music that absolutely deserves, insists on being heard. And it's our duty to make that part of our everyday experience. The way that when, I mean, if for me, this is not rocket science. Anything that we do artistically, even if it is an art form that started, you know, 300 years ago, should reflect our reality in the world as it is and perhaps aspirationally help to change the world into the way we would like it to be and to do that we have to actually reflect who we are um look at the composers that we have programmed over this last covid interrupted year and into this coming year people like carlos simon like jesse montgomery like um joel thompson you know uh the idea of doing new music anyway has always been close to my heart certainly and close to the mission of what the kansas city symphony is about because you cannot really understand why great music is great unless you also understand the music that was being that is being made in your time and i don't think that Mozart or Brahms or Stravinsky would have disagreed because they all were incredibly close to the music of their time. Of course, in the time of earlier composers, there were no recordings. There was no technology. There was no YouTube. So it's not like everything that was ever done is memorialized in a cloud somewhere forever. In order to remember Bach, they had consciously to go back 30 years and play old music. Otherwise, if they wanted music, they had to create it at that moment. But starting towards the end of the 19th century, more and more old music started to become the reference point. And I think it's an incredibly healthy development over the last 50, 60, 70 years that more and more music is looking forward and not backward. I just don't think that we should throw out old music in the process, because that is part of our collective humanity. And the more we understand the great things that that represented for all, with all of the nuance and the complication and the, you know, there is no black and white, it's always gray and, and everything needs to be interpreted. It doesn't mean 
that the art that was made then is not great. And it certainly doesn't mean that there's no space for the art that's being made now. So I listen all the time. People talk all the time. Jason and I have often had conversations with one another, with other people. I heard such and such a piece, so-and-so programmed that, oh, I got a score sent to me, um, whatever it is. And then you make connections, you know? I, I mean, Carlos Simon has become a friend and I'm discussing projects with him in the years to come, things that you know we might commission or things that he's working on already that we might play. Um, I try to have personal contact with all of these composers as much as I can. And I did with Carlos, with Jesse Montgomery, with Joel Thompson, with Gabriel Kane, whoever it is, you try to understand why they're writing the music and what this could, first of all, invoke in you. And then what can you bring to our audiences? Because I don't believe that we should ever play music just for the fact of playing it. I want to play music because I love it so much, I want to share that excitement about it with whoever's hearing it. And then you can give a committed performance, then and only then, I think. You know, it's interesting, even in the pops world, there's a slew of people that orchestrate and arrange and create. And I mean, every summer I spend many, 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 many hours listening to Christmas music, trying to pick the best possible program for Christmas festival which is, you know, one of the, the big concerts that we do every year of six performances, et cetera, involving the chorus and other groups in the community. And I've found a few arrangers that I trust now, that I know that pretty much everything that they write, and like you said, Michael, it's about building relationships. I know each of those people now, and I'm able to talk to them and say, hey, have you ever thought about doing an arrangement of this piece or that? And it is really nice when you when you discover new voices and find some really great ones and are able to build those relationships with them and present their music in the best possible light here at the symphony, I think it's pretty exciting. I mean, Stephanie, you are so involved in mobile music box. Look at the variety of programming that the musicians themselves came up with. And Mike, you yeah. were doing for a long time, nothing out of your house. And sometimes you played, you know, Bach, Johann Sebastian or CPE or any of the other Bachs. <laughs> And sometimes you played totally new stuff and um, uh, and some of it was very serious and meaningful and some of it was very playful and not so serious and it was all good, right? Yeah. And, and Stephanie, yeah. when you do education stuff, you want kids to understand that any music that touches them and gets them excited is worthwhile, right? Yep. So you have to keep renewing that catalog, that pool of possibility because otherwise you're going to keep playing the same seven pieces for them. Well, and I, I mean, I'm so glad you said that. And coincidentally, I was, I was at a school this morning out in blue Springs um, and we had a, a group performing out there and I asked the question it was for um, we ended up playing for 600 elementary students this morning and they were from second to fifth grade. And um, at, it was split up into two, two performances and and I asked both groups how many of them had, had ever heard the Kansas City Symphony before and they you know some of them raised their hands because their school district tends to come to on field trips but some of them haven't been on a field trip in the last two years so you know and and then I asked the question well how many of you have ever heard a symphony before and maybe you know a few of them more of them raised their hands and how many of you think that you've never heard a symphony performed before and lots of kids raised their hands 
And then we start pointing things out, you know, like about how they've heard symphonic music in movies and they've heard symphonic music in video games and in cartoons and, you know, in commercials and things like that. And, you know, just seeing them make a connection there. Oh, well, okay, this this music isn't actually that foreign to me. Plus, it didn't hurt that this group performed um, a medley from uh, The Little Mermaid. Uh, you know, they played Disney tunes and they played a song um, by Maroon 5. You know, I mean, they made these connections, but they also played Bach Brandenburg and they also played... Oh gosh, what else? Uh, Scott Joplin. I mean, you know, there's they they played like this wide variety of music, and I think kids we have to give them more credit than we give them when it comes to you know what excites them and what what they're drawn to. Uh, we have groups that are playing music by Jesse Montgomery and Valerie Coleman, and you know a lot of new music as well. And watching watching people, especially children, respond to to the stuff that we do is. It's really refreshing, and I think we need to pay more attention to how people react to the stuff that we think they're not going to like. Because how do, how do you know you don't like it unless you play it for them? Yeah, is it's it's, it's interesting awesome. you say that because children children are the most honest critics, but they're yep. also the most open minded. Ah, for sure. I feel like when hearing something for the first time. So yeah, absolutely. It's not rocket science, and and I understand that there is an imperative, especially the bigger organization you have the the more you have the pressure to market and sell tickets and but music is at its core communication and it's an art it's not a business and you know there's no amount of consultant speak or gimmicky tricks or you know um branding or anything like that, that's going to make up for the fact that the most powerful way to get people connected to music is the music is bringing the music directly to them. How to do that as best you can, that is a trick that we all have to figure out as we go forward into the 21st century. But it has to be grounded in that. And, you know, I I agree totally with with what you said and what what Jason just said. Kids listen without prejudice unless we give them the bias. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that is true of everything, not just music. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I, I learned that. I learned that from my own kids all the time. <laughs> well, I'm really looking forward to uh, you know everything that uh, is yet to come this season and certainly into the future. And I think um, you know we've talked about it in the podcast many times in many different contexts, but I think, I think actually uh, the pandemic COVID is going to, um, is going to have pushed us, you know, forward in ways that, that, that we needed uh, as an art form. Um, And we could, we could sit here and talk about those things forever, but time is short and there's important business to attend to. Here we go. So, so, Michael, you may recall in our last uh, conversation, I think we touched upon the fact that you really enjoy baking bread. Mm. And uh, and I was sitting around thinking about how we could have a fun little game, uh, which is now, of course, contractually required. We have to have this bar talk segment with all of our KCS family guests. And it occurred to me that there's an interesting connection, actually, between bread and music in that 
They are each nearly universal and a really fundamental element of the human experience. Whoa. (laughs) It also just so happens that World Bread Day is on October 16th. Did you know about World Bread Day? Oh, my. I'm going to take that as a no. I'm going to take that as a a hard no. Okay, well, now you know. Uh, And so uh, thousands of years of human civilization, I believe, have led to this moment, this celebration of World Bread Day. And uh, to, to commemorate this moment, I will quiz the three of you on the entire panoply of breads and oh musics. Whoa. Are you Whoa. ready? Oh my God. Well, I, I, I just want to say one thing. First of all, two, two little points of, of disclosure, and then we jump into this, what I'm sure is going to be fascinating little experiment. <laughs> the first is, uh, yes, I am, I am very enthusiastic about bread. In fact, I kicked it up a little uh, recently. I, I, I bought a mill, and I'm now milling my own flour. Wow. wow. Um, nice. Yes. Yes. I, You're getting I serious. These, I buy these wheat berries, hard wheat, soft wheat, white wheat, red wheat, and I grind the flour and I sift the flour and it's insane. Um, but I also just love cooking and I love eating and I love cooking. Did I mention I love eating? And so the <laughs> pandemic was not really uh, helpful in terms of, you know, exercise and weight loss that there's one thing there and then the second thing is i just realized that it took me about 30 seconds as you were talking describing the game that we were not going to be exploring or tested on our knowledge of great hungarian composers and their musical vernacular because when you said <laughs> well we're gonna it's part now it's a required part of the series that we're gonna have bar talk thought, like car talk michael like like car talk, buy that that bar talk. But I just I needed to shift my pandemic <laughs> brain to understanding what you were talking about. I'm, it is I'm an now, intentional pun, though. It is an intentional pun. Is that we're, right? We're unashamed of that. Yes, yeah, it's bar I mean, talk, like like the composer or bar b a r t a l k, like a talk at a bar. We're very well, clever, Michael. It was a very, fa- was a very, very famous, clever. really, a very famous Israeli general uh, in the 1940 <laughs> and the Suez War, Yitzhak Bar Talk, who um, was, you know, has faded from memory. Anyway, why don't we jump right? Are in, you in the we? right headspace now? You've you've wrapped your brain around what we're really doing. I'm okay. with you. Let's, let's go. Before we start, I must say Michael does make really good bread. I have been the uh, lucky recipient of several delicious loaves, I, yes. and I'm sure you've all, yeah, we all have, and you are very, very talented in the bread-making department, sir. Thank you. I actually dug the ditch for the canal that drives his water wheel, which drives <laughs> his grinding stone, and um, yes, it's quite successful what you're doing there. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> okay, I'm moving. All right. Well, let's let's jump into this already. So this this is how it's going to work. I will describe the ingredients, preparation, and or other distinct characteristics of a particular bread, and your task will be to name the bread. And for a bonus point, you must name a composer from that bread's place of origin. Are you ready? Ooh, here we go. Mm-hmm. Okay. Listen closely now. This bread dating back at least as far as the 15th century, contains large quantities of egg and butter. It is often enjoyed toasted, but has no place in your toaster. Oh. Michael. 
your guess. I'm going to be so bad at this. Butter and eggs. Well, that first of all, there are quite a lot of breads that have butter and eggs, but it has no place in your toaster. So it's the shape and it's uh, what, like a boule, like a French boule or, or, or it's, it, I mean, it could, it's not the croissant. It's not, but it could be a brioche from France. Michael's guess is brioche. Jason? I was going to say brioche actually, but uh, yeah, I'm going to go brioche also. I think it's brioche. Stephanie? I mean, brioche was also my guess to be very honest, but should I go with something different just to be... It could be the soft Hawaiian roll. <laughs> you never know. King's Hawaiian, yes. No, I'll say brioche also. You're all correct. Oh, good for me. It yes. is brioche. And can anyone name a French composer? I don't know no, any. I can't. I don't know a single one. Any. Okay. No. All right. No bonus points then. All right. Very good. <laughs> how, about, how about... So uh, uh, somebody who might have enjoyed a brioche. Somebody a little bit like... Uh, I'm just trying to think of somebody who had a certain um, selection for eating. No, 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 no. Because, you know, the skinny ones probably avoided the carbohydrates. Mm. Um, Oh, I don't know. Chausson had a certain girth to him. Oh. Oh. How about that? (laughs) When I hear the Chausson poem, I think. Brioche? Yes. Brioche soaked in egg wash and cinnamon toasted on a griddle. Yes. Brioche. Butter, butter, butter. Okay. Okay, very good. Excellent. It gets harder from here. Oh, gosh. Oh, boy. Listen closely now. This non-leavened bread is less familiar to most Americans than its leavened cousin. Its simple dough of flour, salt, and water is kneaded, left for a short proof of under an hour, rolled out flat, and cooked in a hot skillet. Jason. Hmm. Well, non-leavened, the first unleavened, the first thing I think of is matzo bread. But since you said non, such don't you gave it away emphasis. No, I think it's going to be non now. I think it's going to be n a a n non. I'm going with non. Jason's going with non. Yes. All right, Michael. It absolutely is not matzo because traditional matzo, you have like a seven minute or something or eight minute uh, window where you can make it. It's not an hour, and it's not. Uh. Slightly proof. There's no proofing because you know we were ah. running through the Red Sea with Cecil B. DeMille and <laughs> Charlton Heston helping us. So um, it is definitely non. And yeah, Mike, you you probably play poker really well, right? Because that's <laughs> that was that was a tell. I want to be clear that I knew that was the answer, even though I'm not the last one going. Oh, I'm I'm also okay. saying non. You know, okay. you're all wrong. Oh, no, really? Oh. You're all wrong. It's the chapati. So you're trying to throw us off. It's, what is it's it? The, oh, it's, it's the, the chapati. The chapati bread, but the chapati bread is not, it's in the direction of. Yes, it's not naan, it's chapati. Oh, I don't know what okay. that is, so I'm still saying it's naan. It's like it, naan. It's exactly like <laughs> From India? On, for God's sakes. <laughs> it's, not, I mean, it's not like a product. So I want you to know, guys, that I have made naan, mm. and I have made matzah, and I have made um, tacos, and they're all kind of in the same sort of direction. It was, it's interesting. This plays into my theory that as a global community, all of us human beings on the planet, we're bound by certain um commonalities and one of them is the way we cook 
right? You need a fat, you need a protein, you need, and when it comes to bread, every culture has some kind of flatbread. And so I applaud the question and annoyed that Mike had to make the distinction between the chapati <laughs> bread and the non bread, but let's well, just move on. <laughs> write that down too. Just put it in his file still. Keep, and do we, keep that do ready. we know a, a, an Indian p- composer? Anybody? Um, Shankar, Ravi, Shankar. Yeah, uh, that's that's the, a good one. That's, good one. that's yeah, the first one go. that comes to my mind. Okay, yeah. final question now. And d- d- careful now. Okay. This bread ain't no zero, but it does have a dimple that may contain all sorts of goodies. Baked, never boiled, you'd be hard-pressed to find these pre-sliced or otherwise. Stephanie. Wow. Okay, there's like a oh. hint in there somewhere. I have no idea. I'm thinking um, if it contains goodies, I'm going to guess focaccia. Focaccia. A fine guess. Jason? Uh, I'm going to go a Danish. Danish. Ooh, a Danish. Interesting. Yeah. Just because it's you know it's depressed in the middle and you put stuff in the middle. I don't okay, know. now I'm confused because I thought we were talking about bread. Danish? Well, it ha- it's, it's bread like it's a pastry. It's a baked. I'll, I'll allow it. Oh, he'll allow ah, it because it's wrong. Now we're expanding the palette to <laughs> baked goods. Generally speaking, well, I'm glad he's not questioning um, mine. It's a it's a it's a bread. What is your guess? Well, it's not a bagel or or no. a bialy yeah. because you said not boiled. So right, um, and it's not a muffin. It could be a muffin, I suppose, of some sort. Um, but it's not really a bread. I think focaccia is not a bad. Focaccia. That's not a bad. Wow. Yeah. See, I thought I thought you were teed up for this one, actually. And perhaps, perhaps my information is not correct. But uh, I was going for bialy, and my understanding is that a bialy is not boiled, whereas a bagel is. I need to study my bread more because I don't even know what bialy is. I don't know what a bialy is. Is it like Max Bialy stock? <laughs> no. Um, so the bialy, I, I confess I've never made an authentic bialy. I do make bagels all the time. And it's such an intricate baking, boiling combo. Um, shout out to our friend Steve Steigman from... W uh-huh. KCUR you are in classical KC. He's a great bagel meister. Mm. Um, but the Bialy, maybe I will have to research to see if it's actually not. Are you? Well, I mean, my friends yeah. at Wikipedia say that it is not boiled. Oh, okay. They do know a lot there. I mean, they're very, so. they're very knowledgeable. They are. I think Michael should win because Michael at least said the word Bialy. He did say the word. Yeah. It's true. Uh, Jason well, and I, I don't even know what it be- is. Well, I thought a bialy was close enough to a bagel that it would also be boiled. It's not actually but that close. I think Michael won because I think uh, so. none of us got number two or number three. We all got number one, and he named the best French composer. Because you true. just go with the, the, the low-hanging fruit of like Ravel or Debussy or any of those. I think that's a fair point. So. <laughs> and I think this was another smashing success for Bartok. Absolutely. I, I believe so, yeah. This was well, a fun one, Mike. Congratulations, Michael, for winning. And we always like to wrap up our show with the winner of Bartok recommending some listening. So I've already put in the notes here that I'm, we're definitely going to recommend a recording of the Chasson poem because clearly that, <laughs> that needs to be referenced. But is there anything you'd like for our listeners to check out? Anything you were listening to over the summer or anything we're, we're performing and upcoming concerts that we should listen to beforehand? Well, I mean, for the upcoming concert, I would certainly reacquaint yourself 
yourselves with uh, the music of Brahms, and especially the first symphony, which was such a watershed moment for him. He had been struggling for years, having been uh, burdened with the responsibility of carrying on Beethoven's tradition to write the next great mm -hmm. symphony, and he couldn't bring himself to do it. By the time he wrote his first symphony, it was pretty explosive, and I can't wait to bring that back to Helsberg Hall. Um, for some reason, I came back, and this has nothing to do with our conversation, but I came back recently because of personal things in my family and in my memory um, to considering the great Schubert C major string quintet, mm. which once again made me believe that there is something mystical and magical in our ability to hear music and have it enter into us. That piece is life-changing. It's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. That would be my recommendation for the day. Good one. Well, you can look for those in our show notes. And uh, Michael, it's been awesome talking with you again. It's been great to see you again in person and uh, just look forward to hearing more music and making more music and continuing to do awesome work here uh, with this orchestra, this amazing orchestra and all the wonderful things you have planned this season. Thank you. Thank you. And everything about the Kansas City Symphony is meaningful to me. And I think the way you guys throughout, throughout this entire pandemic have carried this fun, informed, intelligent, and really effective vehicle for bringing music out to the community with this Beethoven Walks Into the Bar podcast is fantastic. I mean, it needs to be celebrated, needs to be listened to more, it needs to be understood about how great, uh, not only a service for the orchestra it is, but to everybody listening. And I really appreciate the fact that I could be on it twice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. That's really nice of you to say. We appreciate it. And we really enjoyed talking with you again today. Thank you. Please join us next time on the podcast as we talk with the first of many guest conductors on our classical series this year, Maestro Peter Ungen. We're going to hear all about his career, both as a world-class violinist and conductor, find out what he's been up to since his last visit in early 2020, and explore this most exciting program that he will be leading Halloween weekend. Next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. <laughs>